Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to the Outsider Art Podcast, Episode 12, Nick Chand and the Rock Garden of Chandigarh, Part 2. Last episode, we looked at Nick Chan's biography and the creation and discovery of the Rock Garden. This episode, I'd like to discuss the garden itself and a little on how Chand built the sculptural works that brought the garden to life. I'd also like to borrow heavily from Tracy Bonfito's dissertation, The Rock Garden, A Study of Memory, Placemaking and Community in Chandigarh, India, as she has done a comprehensive descriptive walkthrough of the garden, which delves into some of the subtleties of the visitor experience, which may not be apparent by just looking at photographic images. It also describes the different phases of the garden and how they link together. I'd like to finish up with some thoughts on the future of the rock garden now that its creator and custodian, Nick Chand, has passed away. As I mentioned in the previous episode, the rock garden is divided up into three phases, summed up very simply in the book The Collection, The Ruin and The Theatre. Quote, Phase 1 contains the rock collection, Phase 2 contains the sculptures, and in Phase 3 the larger landscape and architectural works are found. End quote. The rock collection, which was the jumping off point for the garden, is the genesis for much of what comes later. In the collection, the ruin and the theatre, they comment on one aspect of this, quote, The rocks that Nick Chand collected, though suggestive of humanoid and bestial forms, were nevertheless ambiguous, allowing a field of rich speculation to emerge, oscillating between the formed and the amorphous. These weather-hewn rocks and metal residues suggest light and dynamic qualities of the celestial dancers to the heavy, primeval and erotic forms of humanoids, the avian and the beasts. The sculptures he later produced soon found a new way of expression, shrugging off any connections with its predecessor's ambiguity of form. However, these retained one important characteristic of the collected rocks, their appearance in multitude. End quote. I'd suggest that the early sculptures created by Chand also shared with the rocks the ambiguity of form that allows for a more interpretive open reading. While having some human features, they are, in some cases, by no means fully formed representations of humans. Much in the same way that sticking googly eyes on an inanimate object suggests life, these early sculptures were more organically formed based perhaps on found armatures and sculptural accidents or tests, humanised by a face or limbs, but more decidedly one-offs, rather than the repeatable forms he would later develop. Over time, Chan developed his techniques for building his sculptures, as described in the book Nick Chan's Outsider Art. Quote, the sculptures were fashioned in mortar over a sturdy armature made of bicycle and tricycle parts, seats, frames, mudguards and handlebars, unearthed here and there in a city where, at the time, cycling was the most frequent mode of transport. Each statue was smoothed over with a layer of cement and given a specific ornament. Bits of crockery, broken electrical plugs, rusty coins, used bottle caps, blown out light bulbs, steel slurry or iron alloys, as well as industrial waste of every conceivable type. 
end quote. In the collection The Ruin and the Theatre, they expand on Chan's developing techniques. Quote, Over 60% of the sculptures currently on display in the garden are ones with humanoid forms and facial features. The sculpting of the faces by Nick Chand has developed over time, starting with rudimentary depictions made of broken bangles. He began modelling the faces, indicating the eyes and mouth with cement proud of the face. A significant development was to model the neck area. Initially the head sat directly on the body for structural reasons. Following some experimentation, the head could be properly supported on a thinner neck, enabling a chin to be modelled and a face to be expressed as a component of the head. Additional features such as hair were added and skin pigmentation created by mixing brick dust with the mortar. Nick Chand also began to model the eyes differently to the mouth, using shells or broken shards of ceramic to form the eye and modelling the brow and cheekbones with cement. The sculptures have become less ambiguous as a result of this process and more readily interpreted as human representation. End quote. As you may have guessed, I am relying heavily on quotes in this episode and I am about to embark on an extremely long borrowing from Tracy Bonfito's dissertation. I wouldn't normally do this, but I think she has done an incredible job of conveying the visitor experience of the rock garden and not having been there myself, it provides a chance to do a vicarious walkthrough as her level of detail is careful and precise. Both her explanation of the garden and its different phases and her observations as she journeys through it help to untangle the mystery and appeal of Nick Chan's world. So, here we go. She starts with a telling comment in her preface to her dissertation. Quote, Perhaps the immediate impression on the first-time visitor is the uncanny feeling of disorientation. Having heard mostly about the garden's Phase two sculptures, I was surprised and delighted at the marvellously haphazard-seeming paths, sculptures, formations, displayed rocks and vistas, positioned not always quite within complete view. One very soon gets the sense that what is visible from the path is only a fraction of what the garden is. The size of the space, which seems even larger due to the winding path and lack of clear views, only adds to this impression. Curiously, the garden seems simultaneously made and not made for the visitor, and I felt as though I had happened across a great secret, despite the fact that on that day, like any other at the garden, thousands of other paying visitors are also enmeshed in the same secret. She continues in the section entitled, A Visit to the Rock Garden Today. The perimeter of the garden is walled and access to the site is controlled via a narrow entrance gate adjacent to the main parking lot on the site's western edge. Before entering the gate the visitor pays a modest admission fee. Standing at around 3 feet in height the admission fee window is set low and the visitor must physically stoop down in order to interact with the ticket sales staff. From here the visitor enters through the gate and into the first of the garden's three interconnected phases. The phases, as the visitor observes during the course of his or her movement through the site, are roughly demarcated in terms of the dominant material used in their construction and their method of display. Phase 1 is comprised largely of displayed river rocks, walls of pebbles and terracotta vessels, 
constructed waterfalls and small discrete huts set into the site's foliage. Phase 2 features sculpture fields of figures constructed out of collected urban and domestic debris, connected via winding pathways and low doorways that obstruct the ability to view the area ahead. Phase 3 features large-scale mosaics, commercial buildings such as a gift shop and a cafe, and open vistas that contrast with the serpentine paths of the earlier two phases. Despite these distinct phases, the transition between them, particularly between the first two phases, is subtle, and the visitor is only tangentially aware of the flow from one phase to the next. As such, each phase feels distinct but interconnected, with the most jarring difference noticeable in Phase 3. Even before entering the site, however, its exterior suggests several impressions that linger and develop during the visitor's progression through the garden. The site is simultaneously rustic and developed, organised but freeform, situated prominently on the landscape and with a designated visitor walkway, but also containing a number of hidden, unexpected elements and continual possibilities for discovery. The site's exterior wall is constructed largely of bitumen drums, with each section of wall stacked three drums in height. Because the drums have been partially covered with a mixture of sand and cement, they register to the viewer as stone or aged concrete pillars, implying, perhaps, the presence of ancient ruins. The visual fabrication of the wall as stone is partially disrupted by the presence of a pipe and wires that run horizontally along the length of this portion of the wall. Such reminders of the site's structure and mechanics occur throughout the garden, demonstrating that the site is not, in fact, open to free exploration and discovery. Prohibitive signage, barbed wire, structures that block paths that diverge from the main route occasionally act as devices that rupture the visitor's suspended disbelief. Several Phase 2 style sculptures are displayed along the top of the portion of the wall that flanks the entrance gate. Large birds, perhaps geese or swans, which are constructed of rebar and concrete overlaid with broken white ceramic pieces. These hint at some of the fanciful features inside, specifically those encountered in Phase 2, and act as a visual invitation through a gate that is otherwise foreboding in appearance. The entrance gate, left ajar during the site's opening hours, is constructed of the same stacked bitumen drums, and so obscures the site's entrance when closed, appearing to be just another section of wall. Furthering the effect of this obscured view, the visitor immediately enters into shelter, or lobby, the roof of which precludes the visitor's ability to see further into the site. This limitation of sightline, produced by the winding pathways, low-height doorways and covered portions of the walkway, is an element that occurs frequently through the garden. Such limited line of sight has the effect of creating an element of continually encountering the unexpected. Upon entering phase one, the visitor encounters a curved stone wall, the top surface of which is covered in a mosaic of broken white and pastel shade tiles. Some 90 natural local river rocks are mounted against this mosaic. The rocks, of various and roughly alternating heights, are installed at regular intervals as though on display as at a museum. Nearby, similar rocks are displayed in concrete niches. 
The stone and mosaic wall runs alongside the walking path of this first section of the garden and is broken by several arched doorways, some of which lead into small shelters that contain additional displayed rocks. The presence of these doorways, but more particularly the inability for the visitor to get a sense of what lies beyond them, increase the impression that there are multiple available paths, alternative directional choices, and the possibility for discovery throughout this section. Adding to the sense of discovery and stimuli is the variety of textures, colours and surfaces found in this area. Smooth, pastel ceramic surfaces coexist alongside the grainy surface of volcanic rock, the curvature of handmade terracotta vessels, and the undulating surface of pebble screens. At the end of this path, the visitor next passes into a small shelter, which exits onto a longer and narrower pathway. Here, individual stones are displayed along a portion of the wall. Elsewhere, smaller-scale stones are grouped in a manner that evokes miniature landscape or architectural scenes. Several partition walls, some constructed of terracotta vessels, others of pebbles pressed into the surface of concrete, still others of wires covered with cement and gravel, are arranged both in the visitor's path and along the upper edge of the wall. Because neither of the terracotta nor the rebar partitions completely obstruct the visitor's view when he or she is standing directly in front of them, they act almost as screens through which a limited sightline is possible, encouraging the notion that some of the garden's features remain just out of sight or reach. There are trees and potted plants situated throughout this area that, though carefully placed, appear haphazard. Additionally, there are several small excavated ponds that fill with water during the rainy season. These elements suggest to the visitor that the garden is unplanned, perhaps, and is operating in tune with, rather than imposing itself upon, its natural environment. As the visitor progresses, the path opens into a small courtyard with a cement and clay hut at the far side. Two traditional millstones flank its doorway. These stones serve as exhibition-style signage, introducing the historic importance of the hut. Written in Hindi, Punjabi, Urdu and English, the explanatory text reads, quote, This is the hut wherefrom Mr. Nick Chand made modest beginnings of his immortal masterpiece Rock Garden. End quote. The rather rustic atmosphere of this section is heightened by the placement of several concrete walls, upon which have been scrawled, as though by hand with a stick perhaps, a series of symbols and designs. These resemble something of a private primitive language of pictograms or hieroglyphics. While some of the images are vaguely familiar as stylized birds, teacups or foliage, in large part these symbols together with the deserted hut, the overgrown foliage and the surface cracks and moss on the concrete, contribute to the impression that the visitor has discovered a long-abandoned site containing the indecipherable elements of a forgotten civilization. This impression continues as the path extends into the subsequent section of the garden. Here the high stone and cement walls and curvature of the narrow path together restrict the visitor's view. Many of the stones used in the construction of the wall are vaguely figural, some resembling human torsos, for example. Inserted into the wall at eye level at one point along the path is a small votive that resembles a shrine or temple with a central divine figure. At this point, the path diverges, 
where it on one hand narrows further and is blocked to access by a bitumen drum and on the other directs the visitor into a cave-like structure. While it contains no overtly religious imagery, this structure, perhaps also due in part to the shrine votive mounted at its exterior, is similar in feel to the excavated caves in other parts of India, such as at Ajanta and Ellora. The visitor exits this covered cave into an open space that contains a stone and tile amphitheatre structure, and more prominently, a roughly mughal style structure, with columns and chhatris that sits atop a wide waterfall. Smaller waterfalls cascade down the adjacent stone and cement walls. There are inaccessible and partly accessible stone steps on either side of the main waterfall and additional architectural structures and facades extend along the top ridge of the constructed hillside. These structures are similar in appearance to grottos or partially ruined fortresses, are connected via a bridge that is also inaccessible to the visitor. The area's large central waterfall flows onto one of three connected stone walkways where it trickles into two sunken streams to be recirculated through the waterfall. Opposite the main waterfall and on the other side of one of the streams is a large reinforced concrete wall, similar in appearance to aged stone. The wall features a grid of deep relief sculptures. A lower register depicts architectural forms with cone-shaped roofs and an upper register stylized human, perhaps skeletal figures. Due perhaps to the way in which the water flows directly onto the portion of the walkway that is adjacent to the waterfall, together with the system of narrow bridges that connect the three pathways, the presence of moss, actual foliage and the convincing appearance of a fabricated overgrowth of concrete roots reiterates the impression that the visitor has happened across the ruins of an ancient civilization. The architectural structures in this section incorporate stylized elements of Harappan, Mughal, Hindu temple and colonial era fort architecture and motifs and as such register as pan-Indian rather than regionally or religiously specific. This section of the garden is a popular one for visitors to gather, take photographs in front of the waterfall and despite the posted prohibitive signs, explore the area by climbing onto the concrete vines and stone stairways. During the busiest times of the day at the garden, visitors often stream through the initial sections, stopping only when they reach the waterfall vista. To some extent, during the far less crowded earlier hours of the day, the architectural structures, overgrown foliage and motifs imply the visitor is an adventurer who has happened upon a series of lost ruins. At other hours, the crowds and jubilant atmosphere make this impression difficult to sustain. Despite the crowds, however, the open vista with its large-scale architectural features and dramatic waterfalls serves as an unexpected surprise after the narrow paths, displayed rocks and high walls of the earlier sections. From this open vista, the visitor proceeds via another narrow winding path the walls alongside which are constructed of stone and cement nodules, which together create a rough texture. Along the top of the left-hand side of this wall, as the visitor progresses, is a series of small-scale buildings, paths and waterways constructed of stones, terracotta and cement, where small plants are positioned to appear as trees and bushes. 
Unlike, for example, a diorama situated in a more typical display, this miniature village is set higher than an easy viewing height and so is simultaneously presented to the visitor and yet out of easy view. From the path one can see individual buildings and features, but not a clear layout of the village. The village gives the appearance of existing on its own terms, interrupted by, rather than existing for, the visual edification of the visitor. It also creates the possibility of the illusion that the village is actually full scale but viewed at a distance, as on a hillside. Moving through this section, the visitor is compelled to pass through quickly. The narrowness of the walled path creates uncomfortably tight quarters for crowds of people. While at the same time she or he is encouraged to linger, the miniature village is highly detailed and complex. This flow of movement through this space increases the sense that the village is accessible but not entirely or immediately so. As the path proceeds through phase 1, the visitor is able to glimpse one more view of the main waterfall as well as a view into the upcoming phase 3 before passing into the garden's next section. This layout of interconnected views recasts previously seen areas in a different perspective and hints at areas to come that are not presently accessible from the current path. As the visitor proceeds, the next section consists of several concrete huts and fortress-like structures with arches, steps and stone and tile walls, and reiterates the sense experienced in the waterfall vista that the viewer is happening across a set of ruins. In this area, it is difficult to distinguish the natural landscape features from the created architectural ones, and the stone walkways, walls and paths undulate as though they have been altered by a history of seismic forces. Here a variety of methods have been employed in the creation of the physical elements. Short partition screens are made from concrete with rows of linearly placed pebbles. A mosaic of multicoloured ceramic fragments decorate the curved walls. Some betray the curved sides of cups and the hallmarks printed on the underside of plates. Nearby, a structure that resembles Le Corbusier's smooth-surfaced concrete Sector 1 Tower of Shade is finished with a textured rock and tile exterior. Stone steps that terminate at stone walls flank low, arched doorways constructed of highly textured volcanic rocks, and throughout the scene are situated unusually shaped rocks similar to those found in the garden's first sections. Here the rocks are placed amongst ceramic and terracotta surface mounds, with the mounds repeating the forms of the found rocks in a stylized manner. Other wall surfaces are decorated with a mosaic of irregularly shaped fragments of electrical mouldings. Intermixed with the curved surfaces of the archways, the undulating walls and the found rocks and created mounds is a repeated angularity. A row of stacked terracotta vessels appear as spikes and several of the structures terminate in jagged parapets. The appearance of the angular mouldings is surprising amongst the curved surfaces covered by the ceramic fragments and the natural stones. Elsewhere there are other unexpected juxtapositions. A small enclosed lawn appears to be the remains of a sunken garden and gives the impression that the formerly landscaped terrain is now left forgotten. In an adjacent region, trees are manicured and situated within stone planters. 
the experience of so many different textures and surfaces, together with the juxtaposition of the haphazard and the orderly, creates something of a confused and fractured sensory experience. These experiences are complemented and heightened by the general feeling of discovery and the chaos of unexpected views. The visitor progresses and, in a reversal of the experience in the previous sections where the viewer was situated amongst or below the structure, the next portion of the garden is seen from above. A viewing platform allows for a visual survey of the entire scene below where a concrete and stone courtyard features a central village style well on a raised platform. The visual contrast of such a vantage point is noticeable. The visitor has the sense for the first time that everything in this section is visible, that there are no hidden components beyond the reach of sight. Upon descending, however, it becomes obvious that this impression is deceptive. The courtyard is in fact populated with over 100 displayed rocks and exits via a winding path through a partially visible shelter. No sign or other marker at this point denotes the shift into phase two, but nevertheless the visitor is soon aware of a distinct structural difference as the path proceeds. The next sections are composed largely of sculpture fields, which are set above eye level and situated on walls constructed of stones, concrete and tile mosaic. The sculptures are grouped by type, and so the visitor is confronted with successions of grouped-like figures, humans, animals, birds, fantasy beasts, constructed of rebar, concrete, pebbles, fragments of cups, bottles and plates, terracotta vessels, broken glass and plastic bracelets, bicycle handlebars, electrical fixtures. There are groups of figures that depict meditating sadhus, sari-clad ladies, peacocks, children in school uniforms, musicians, monkeys, peacocks, geese, bulls. There are arrangements of conjoined figures that share bodies and appendages, figures whose arms terminate in whole teacups, trapezoidal forms covered with a mosaic of pebbles and featuring a human face. Throughout this section there is a striking juxtaposition of recognisable objects, particularly ones that connect with daily life and fantastical forms. A local visitor might well imagine that some of the household objects used in the construction of these sculptures had come from his or her own household or from those of neighbours. The uncanny is frequently positioned alongside the familiar in ways that are sometimes amusing or curious such as when figures constructed of broken teacups holding serving trays of intact tea sets, or when reclining figures appear to be incapacitated by drink. At other times, the effect is unsettling. A section of repeated concrete female figures starkly pale in contrast to the earlier vibrant figures constructed of broken bangles appear hauntingly skeletal. The complexity of this interaction is intensified by the placement of the sculpture fields which lay on each side of the walking path and well above the comfortable viewing height of the visitor. One result of this placement is the impression that at times the sculptures on one side of the path appear to be engaged in an interaction with the figures on the opposite side, rather than with the human viewer in between. At others, the figures in a single field appear to be engaged in conversation, interaction or conflict with each other. Because of these impressions, the visitor often feels he or she is an unseen witness rather than a participant in the environment created in Phase 2. 
The path passes below the eye level of the figures and the visitor is unable to engage in or at times even fully witness the fantastical scenes being carried out in the sculpture fields above. Although there is much to see on either side of the path, this portion of the garden tends to be less densely populated by visitors than either the waterfall vista or the upcoming phase 3 courtyard. Visitors often pass through the area relatively quickly, with fewer people stopping to take photographs or to marvel at the features than occurs in the garden's open vistas. This is perhaps due to the thoroughfare nature of the viewing path. The same pathway that proceeds towards phase 3 at one point diverges in the opposite direction and towards the exit, and visitors must retrace their steps through this earlier section, rather than leave the garden through phase 3. Furthermore, the path, while not particularly narrow, features few of the open vistas or shaded areas that in other parts of the garden encourage gathering and leisurely observation. Continuing along the path into phase 3, the exterior wall appears increasingly standardised and, unlike in earlier sections, less piecemeal in their construction. A large section of this wall is crafted from stacked burlap bags, which are filled with concrete or rocks and covered with a cement mixture. This treatment gives the effect of a stylized stone wall, almost amusingly bulbous in its construction, and though at a much larger scale similar in shape to the curvaceous rocks displayed in earlier regions. Other portions of the wall in this section are created from stones of various sizes pushed into concrete. A number of these stones feature handwritten graffiti produced by previous visitors. Although this practice is discouraged by signage and presumably staff, there are many areas in the garden where such graffiti exists. The third and final phase of the garden is marked by a commemorative sign which announces the phase's official inauguration on September 23, 1993. Adjacent to the commemorative sign is a small souvenir shop, the presence of which signals a shift into a more consumer and visitor-oriented experience. Overall, there is a noticeable unity across the design elements in Phase 3, and a greater sense that the structures and features are oriented with a mind to the visitor's experience. Most design features and sculptures are clearly within sight, for example, and are positioned at eye level rather than above it. The impression given in Phase 3 is that it was planned rather than built gradually by accretion, and then later fitted with a visitor walkway. Whereas many of the earlier sections were notable for their blocked or incomplete visual access and their divergent paths inaccessible to the ordinary visitor, Phase 3 is on the whole markedly open, its features designed for easy access and, although it may not be immediately obvious during all hours of visitation, available as a rented event space. Before reaching the large open Phase 3 plaza, the visitor passes through shaded paths alongside an excavated stream with adjacent waterfalls. Along the top edge of a wall that has been constructed from concrete and burlap bags are a series of figures barely visible from the ground, but who appear to be seated in cross-legged meditation. A Shiva-like figure holds a three-pronged trident and stands among them, and in the background the domed finial of a chhatri structure is visible. These features add to the vaguely religious but largely pan-Indian nature of much of the garden's imagery, 
and unlike most of phase 3, connects with the impression from phase 1 and phase 2 that the garden exists outside of and beyond the viewer's gaze. Passing through this walkway, the visitor enters into the large phase 3 plaza. To the left, immediately upon entry, is a large amphitheatre structure with stepped seating, the surface of which is covered with a mosaic of broken ceramic tableware. The back wall of the stadium features panels of designs, many of which, in contrast to the motifs found in earlier phases of the garden, are stylized or self-referential in that they depict architectural or sculptural features found in earlier phases. There are simple mandala forms, a large grinning cat and imagery of phase 2 sculptures. Similar patterns are repeated on the walls of the pavilions and structures at the far side of the plaza. The ceramic pieces used in the phase 3 mosaics are noticeably uniform in terms of size, quality and surface texture when compared to most of the ceramic mosaics found in the earlier phases. Immediately to the right of the plaza entrance and at the opposite side from the stepped seating is a rectangular building featuring columns and arches and a rectangular railing along the roof. This structure houses the site's aquariums, a series of fish tanks arranged behind viewing windows and is adjacent to a tiled wall of spigots available for hand washing. A second adjacent rectangular building is labelled Laughing Mirrors and features funhouse-style distorted mirrors. There is a small cafe drink stand located at the building's opposite side. A curvilinear structure of arches extends along the centre and far perimeter of the plaza, atop which are large-scale horse sculptures. Beneath each arch hangs a wide plankboard swing, which many visitors choose to use. Beyond this, a series of low rectangular shelters feature interior mosaic-clad columns, walls and ceilings, as well as relief sculptures. In addition to stylized and self-referential imagery, some mosaics depict landscapes, symbols and animals. As such, they are strikingly different from the mosaic walls and display platforms of the earlier sections, which do not depict images at all. The perimeter shelters appear to be more decorative than functional, except for the furthermost shelter. This structure is used as a storehouse for many of the site's construction materials and uninstalled sculptures. Many of the structures throughout this area remain unfinished. The visitor is struck with the impression that not only is Phase 3 perpetually in progress, but also that the unfinished work provides a rare glimpse at the construction process that in other areas can only be guessed at. Wire and steel interior framework, uncompleted mosaics and rebar extensions signal active construction but, because no artists or craftspeople are present, leave the visitor to wonder when or if the structures will be completed. There are a number of natural trees spaced irregularly through the plaza and among these are several tree trunks constructed from cement. The central area of the plaza appears to the visitor to be a somewhat flexible space, but one in which a number of semi-regular features generally appear. A camel available for rides at a fee, a small train for children, and an inflatable slide. Many visitors stream through the earlier sections to congregate here in the open plaza. Although few people seem to take advantage of the camel or train rides or inflatable slide, there are many families, couples and groups talking, observing, eating snacks and taking photographs. 
Unlike earlier sections of the garden that seem to encourage the notion that the visitor has happened across a series of ancient or fanciful ruins, Phase 3 appears primarily as an amusement park. At times in the garden the visitor has the experience of engaging in an unrestricted exploration of the site's features, but this impression is periodically disrupted by the elements that block access or otherwise dictate a course of action. The potted plants that block access to the original hut or the haphazard appearing bitumen drums that prevent the ascension of a stairway in a later section may be calculated to restrict visitor access, but because they make use of common elements found in the garden, pots and drums, they tend to have the appearance of being unplanned and incidental. The signs posted at regular intervals and with instructions in English, Hindi, Punjabi not to climb on the garden's walls muddy its paths or touch its sculptures mitigate the visitor's experience in ways that are more direct. Similarly, the metal trash bins with the hand-painted instruction to use me, signs that discourage littering more generally, and signs announcing a fine for littering in the garden, contribute to the impression that the garden is, in reality, a tightly restricted space. In contrast, the winding pathways that vary in width frequently prevent distant sightline seem to diverge and often circle back on themselves, establish a carefully planned walkway that encourages the feeling of free-form exploration on the part of the visitor. In describing this path through the garden, there are innumerable features that continue to surprise even the frequent visitor. The large ceramic fragment that is recognisable as the rim of a urinal and built into a doorway in phase 2. The tiny detailed model house set within a collection of displayed rocks. The mosaic clad chair that brings to mind the Grand Modèle armchair designed by Le Corbusier. Additionally, the garden's static features are unpredictably enlivened in a variety of ways. Staff members are glimpsed moving in and out of buildings that are inaccessible to the visitor. Pigeons and chipmunks adapt small holes and walls for their own use. Feral dogs occasionally manage to access and walk along the top edge of an interior wall. As a result, the visitor encounters the garden as a site that seems to delight in unexpected scenes and juxtapositions, that encourages another look and that rewards multiple visits. End quote. Whew. How good was that? If that doesn't spark enthusiasm to take a trip to the rock garden, when taking trips is feasible again, I'm not sure what would. I really like the honesty, authority and curiosity of this description, so many thanks to Tracy Bonfito for her in-depth exploration of the garden. I think we'll end this episode with some thoughts on the future of the rock garden. And fair warning, it's not all that positive, unfortunately. I think that, similar to many visionary environments, the rock garden finds itself in a precarious space following the death of its creator. Nick Chand acted not only as the creator director, but also as the custodian and protector of the rock garden. His position and his international profile gave credence and authority in the minds of both the Chandigarh administrators and the general public. Essentially, he was the most effective barrier against attacks on the garden. That is not to say that there were no difficulties in continuing to build and maintain the garden, 
There were constant difficulties with funding and several serious attempts to destroy parts of the garden during his lifetime. However, with the figure of Nick Chan to rally around, as well as his determination and belief in the project, these difficulties were able to be overcome. Following Chan's passing, it would seem that the officialdom of Chandigarh have successfully managed to shut out Nick Chan's immediate family and the Nick Chan Foundation from having a substantive role in the management of the garden, and this has led to a serious deterioration in the garden. As summed up in a post by the Nick Chan Foundation in 2018 under the title Crisis in Chandigarh, quote, The world's largest and most spectacular visionary environment Nick Chan's incredible legacy is under very serious threat as the Chandigarh administration takes all the funding away and cuts out Nick Chan's son and family. After many years of semi-neglect, the position in Chandigarh has reached crisis point as the city administration has given up all pretense of looking after the rock garden and has left it to deteriorate while taking all the entrance money of about 700000 a year. Where all this money goes is a closely guarded secret. There is no conservation program, no repairs, no staffing, no guides, no visitor supervision, no working toilets or washrooms, no care, no pride, and all the entrance money is siphoned off. End quote. They follow this up with a request that supporters make their protest heard with the government of India and the embassies of various nations. In 2019, the Nick Chan Foundation, in association with the US-based Kohler Foundation, an organisation that has supported the restoration and protection of a substantial number of visionary environments in the US, made a submission to the Union Territory Administration to contribute $1 million to the restoration and completion of the garden. Unfortunately, it seems that this offer was rejected due to a disagreement over the conditions surrounding the offer, which, as I understand it, meant that the Nick Chan Foundation were to take over ownership rights for two years and run the garden in conjunction with the local Rock Garden Society in the future. I can understand the difficulty for the local authorities to accept this offer, which, while it may be appropriate in the circumstances, and probably best practice, runs up against cultural blocks and would likely seem to be seen as severely undermining local authority, which would be counterproductive in all sorts of ways. I sincerely hope that there can be some resolution to this impasse, as it would seem that there has been further difficulties in regards to expanding the rock garden and further deterioration of the garden and the facilities Given the importance of the rock garden to both Indian culture and tourism, and is one of the finest global examples of a visionary environment, it would be a tragedy were it to fall into disrepair and ruin. Hopefully further negotiations between the various parties involved can overcome any enmity and find a way to reach a productive resolution that both saves face and saves the rock garden. I apologise for ending this extremely long episode on a sour note. I would direct you to the Nick Chan Foundation at nickchan.com if you are interested in finding out more about what they do and how you may be able to assist them in their mission. I haven't quite decided on who will feature on the next episode of the Outsider Art Podcast, so stay tuned for a surprise. Many thanks for listening, sharing, supporting and enjoying the Outsider Art Podcast. 
is much appreciated.